If you were here last week, you'll know that we began our new series by focusing on our verse of the year. And there's a nice card and also some bookmarks available. Uh, Do take them. We don't want them just lying around. And if you want to give them to friends, it's a reminder that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Today we begin at the beginning of Nehemiah, as you've already heard in the children's talks, where we are introduced to Nehemiah in his own words. You'll notice if you read through the book uh, that a good part of it is written in the first person singular. And if you know the book of Nehemiah, you want to ask yourself, what kind of man is this man, Nehemiah, that we're going to be walking with, God willing, over these next weeks and months? What kind of words would describe him? Well, courage, determination, perseverance, action, dynamism. More importantly, in a book which is part of a much larger book, the Bible, which we believe is God's word, What does God want us to learn from this book and from the man whose name it bears? The most common answer in the books and commentaries that have been written on Nehemiah focuses on one word, the word leadership. And many of the books focus on Nehemiah as the leader par excellence. Let me just give you three examples. Uh, Let's just go back a little way. 1976, theological professor Cyril Barber wrote a book on Nehemiah entitled Nehemiah and the Dynamics of Effective Leadership. Uh, Ten years later, in 1986, John White, popular speaker, author, psychiatrist, uh, wrote a very good book called Excellence in Leadership. And then in 1990, the American pastor James Montgomery Boyce Uh, wrote an expositional commentary on Nehemiah, which is subtitled, Learning to Lead. Now, all these are excellent resources. We'll no doubt refer to them. If you can get a hold of some of them, it'd be well worth your reading them. There is much we can learn here about leadership. For Nehemiah was indeed a remarkable leader who mobilized a disparate group of people in his native Judah to accomplish an amazing task as they faced a challenge, the the challenge uh, which our title encapsulates, restoring the ruins, the ruins of the walls and gates of Jerusalem. But as we begin today, I want to focus on something about Nehemiah that we can so easily forget and so easily ignore, something without which he would never have accomplished anything. Something without which he would never have accomplished anything. And that word is the word prayer. And we're going to find this thread running through the book of Nehemiah. And so today I want to suggest a title, which you'll see on the front of your cover. The title I've chosen is Nehemiah, Man of Prayer. So it would help to have the Bible in front of you again. Will you turn again to Nehemiah 1? Uh, We're just going to study the first chapter this morning. It's on page 485, if you have a pew Bible. Those with long memories may remember that six years ago, uh, we went through a series called People in Prayer, and I focused on this opening chapter. There's a cartoon on our church calendar this week that says, the pastor is preparing, and it says, I am a green pastor, I believe in recycling sermons. (laughs) So, 
for those with long memories, I'm going to use the same three points for my outline, but considerably reworked and rethought and re-prayed over. Uh, so what we're going to look at, let me tell you where we're going so you can stay with me and stay focused. We're going to look at three aspects of Nehemiah's prayer. First of all, the theme of prayer and emotion in verses 1 through 4. Then secondly, the prayer itself, prayer and petition, uh, verse 5 through to the first half of verse 11. And finally, prayer and action or prayer and decision, uh, the second half of verse 11. So first of all then, prayer and emotion. Verses 1 to 4. Wasn't it great news on Thursday to see that plane land and all the people get out safely? Didn't it just give you a lift to actually switch on the news and get some good news? It's just wonderful, wasn't it? It lifted everybody. See that plane come in and some people stepped on the plane wing, didn't even get wet and got a boat back, probably asking where their luggage was. But wasn't it amazing? (laughs) Unfortunately... Much of the news is bad news. I began to prepare this on Wednesday. I did my research on Tuesday. So this is the way I operate. Take Monday off or to recover usually. Uh, and then Tuesday do my work, research, administration. And then begin to think through what God wants us to focus on. And, and this, these were the news headlines on Wednesday. Uh, more than 1,000 killed in Gaza. Here are some other headlines on the same day. Couple watch two-year-old die. A British student dies on ski trip. Scotland, man murdered while toddler slept. And the book of Nehemiah opens with what we would call in modern parlance a really bad hair day for Nehemiah. Here he is living and working in the citadel of Susa, which was on the coast. It was the winter residence of the kings of Persia who were now the top dogs in the world. His brother comes back from the long trip back home to native Judah, where Nehemiah's ancestors lived. And naturally, he asked him, asked him, how are things back home? And he receives bad news from back home. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. Now, just to backtrack a little, this is not a reference to what the Babylonians did 150 years before this, when they reduced the city to rubble. That was very bad news, but it's very old news. What he's referring to here is, 12 years before this event with which Nehemiah opens happened, Another key figure, Ezra, who gives his name to the book that precedes Nehemiah, a priest, went back to Jerusalem to begin the work of restoring the worship of God's people in the temple which had been rebuilt and rebuilding the walls. And for a time it looked as though he was making really good progress. But the neighbors around Judah noticed what was happening and they got rather alarmed to see Judah rising again. And so they wrote a letter to the king of Persia and said, Your Majesty, blah, 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 blah. Do you not know that these Jews are planning a rebellion? If you check your history, you'll find that these are a very troublesome people. And the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, when he got this news, he sent a message back immediately, having checked the facts, and said, Stop all the work immediately. And it appears that even what they'd already begun had been knocked down and destroyed. And so no wonder the people, the exiles, were in disgrace and in deep despair. 
now. I don't know how you responded to those headlines in the news on Wednesday. I imagine your feelings would be much stronger if you had some connection with the news item. One or two of us were very alarmed on Thursday evening when the news came first of this plane crash because it said it was a plane leaving New York going to Charlotte. And if you know, last Sunday we said goodbye to James and Katrina Anderson and their girls who were flying to New York and then to Charlotte. What a relief to find, A, they weren't on the plane, and of course that the plane landed safely on the river, that they even avoided that. They went from a different airport in, in New York on a different airline. But for a moment you begin to think, gosh, this may well be my family. When Nehemiah hears the news about Judah and Jerusalem, there is no relief. It's bad news. Nehemiah's response, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, before we dismiss this, there's some kind of emotional response from people in the Middle East who are a bit like that. You know, they tend to burst into tears much more easily than we Scots do. Except in sporting events, we won't go there. Um, Just don't write it off at that point. While it is true that outward expressions of emotion vary from culture to culture, very few of us, even if we got really bad news, would rend our garments asunder and sit in sackcloth and ashes. Nonetheless, every human being has emotional capacities. It's part of our God-given constitution. We are made in the image of God, and the idea of God, a God who is impassive to human suffering, owes more to Buddhism than Judaism, and even less to the Christian faith. Our role model is one who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one who burst into tears at the grave of a friend. So I think the greater cause for concern is when a person receives serious bad news and shows no visible sign of emotion. In fact, all of us respond some way emotionally, though our emotional range and expression or degree of intensity may vary from person to person. No, all of us express emotion and emotions of grief and sorrow in some way when we are confronted with bad news. The real question for us is, what kind of bad news makes you really upset? Surely, as we've said, it is those things that affect us and those closest to us. But is there anything more than this for those who belong to God's people? Those who claim, like most of us would do this morning, to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and be part of his church. On one level, the reason for Nehemiah's anguish is the disaster that has befallen the people of Judah. It's his people, where his family came from. But Nehemiah is not simply mourning because he belongs to the Jewish nation but also because he belongs to the people of God, whose name has been brought into disrepute. And so he mourns because of the disgrace that has been brought on the name of the Lord. And this is the added dimension beyond those human ties which are common to all people on earth. For Christians, we have that deep personal concern, if you are a true Christian, for that community of people which bears the name of Christ. We grieve when things happen to Christians. We grieve when we hear of persecution and suffering. And we grieve when something happens that brings scandal or disgrace to the name of the Lord. So the relevant question for us as we start out on this series and on this chapter is, do we have a similar concern for the church of Jesus Christ? And if so, what do we do about it? Do we turn to protest? 
appeal to the authorities, even as some religions and cultures do resort to arms and violence? Or, or do we do what Nehemiah could have done in his privileged position? Salve our conscience with a nice gift to the Jerusalem wall appeal and shrug our shoulders and say there's nothing much we can do about this situation. It's just the way things are. Does the sudden declining state of the Church of Jesus Christ in Scotland and in the United Kingdom cause you anguish? And before you jump up and say, yes, it does, let me simply say this. The answer to our anguish is not seen in what we say, but in what we pray and whether we pray. Nehemiah's emotion drives him to serious prayer and fasting. And if the honor of God's name and the state of the church that bears that name and the name of his son, Jesus Christ, is not prominent in our prayers, then there can be only one of two reasons. The first is that you do not truly belong to Jesus Christ. And so naturally you have no great affinity with what happens to that church, for you don't belong to it. The second is that we fail to really appreciate the seriousness of the situation and we need to hear the news like Nehemiah did and face up to the bad news. We need to ask God by His Spirit to thaw out our cold hearts so that we are moved to compassion and moved to prayer. Let me be absolutely practical. Last week, if you were in Charlotte Chapel, you received an insert in a flyer that said, as we begin this new year, new series, whatever it is, as we face 2009, there is a week of prayer from 7.30 till 8.15, Monday to Friday. Now, I realize some of us can't make it. Some of us, to my embarrassment, even me, for the first time in a prayer meeting in 17 years, overslept on the first morning. <laughs> but, but nonetheless... What concerns me is on Wednesday, we prayed for the state of our nation and government. Twenty people were there. We're concerned about the nation. We shrug our shoulders and say, that's the way Scotland's going. Turning against God. UK's going down the tubes. What can we do about it? We can pray. Interestingly, up that same morning, and you really missed something, uh, Sharon Dickens, who... As part of the staff at Nidri, came and shared what was happening in Nidri. It was so exciting, hearing about these new converts and things that are really happening, that God is moving there. Shall I tell you one reason why God is moving there? For the whole of the past year, that little church at Nidri, every weekday morning from 7 till 9, not just for one week, have met for prayer. They meet for prayer every day for two hours. And I suggest to you that when you get serious about prayer, and when we get serious as a church about prayer, when we really appreciate the seriousness of the situation, it will move our hearts, and it will move us to pray. One of the sad things for me as a pastor in this church is that over the years, we've seen a gradual, gradual decline in attendance at prayer meetings. Over the years. Gradually, gradually, gradually. Our main prayer meeting for missions we probably get around 50 people, 60 sometimes. When I first came here, it was over 100. I'm the senior pastor. I'm as much to blame as anyone else. But I simply call your attention to it and that we need to be more serious and intentional in the matter of prayer in this church. And so Nehemiah was like that. So we turn from prayer and emotion. Let's turn to the prayer and prayer and petition, verses 5 to 11. In the face of bad news... 
The person with no living relationship with the living God can only turn within, consumed with inner anguish, or to others who at best can provide sympathy, but no ultimate answers. Or in desperation, sometimes, even if we don't know God, we pray to whatever God may be out there, but with no real assurance that there is a God who, A, can help, and B, is willing to help. But Nehemiah, whose name fittingly means the Lord comforts or comforted, has someone beyond himself. And other people who he knows can and will help. So notice as we look at this prayer very briefly, and it it bears much closer study than we have time for, Nehemiah's assurance is, first of all, the Lord is able to help. Notice how he prays. He mourns and fasts before the God of heaven. It is the Lord, the God of heaven, whom he addresses in the opening words of his prayer. Now, how we address God in prayer says an awful lot about the God that we believe in. This term, God of heaven, and there are many different expressions in Scripture of ways in which people address God, but the the expression God of heaven is an interesting one. It occurs 22 times in the Old Testament. 17 of them are found in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel. And there is a reason for this. They're prayers that people prayed when they were in exile, far from home. Far from home, the people of Israel came to a greater appreciation of who the God was that they worshipped, the Lord God. Not just the God of Israel, or the land of Israel, or any geographical nation on earth, because once you're out of Israel... Uh, Does God move out of control once you step over the border? No, they came to appreciate that the God that they worshipped was the one true God. He was the God of heaven who transcended all nations on earth, who was above the earth, above all other gods, who were no gods at all. And that is where Nehemiah's prayer begins. So he is the God above all gods who is able to help the God of heaven. And he, he reiterates this by saying, the great and awesome God. And in an age of pluralism in which Nehemiah lived, like the age that we live in, we need to enlarge our understanding of who the God is to whom we come in prayer. He's the God whom Isaiah the prophet declared, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. The one whom the writer of Proverbs describes, he says, in whose hands is the king's heart to direct it like a watercourse to wherever he pleases. A God who is sovereign and in control. So Nehemiah is utterly assured of the fact that this great God of heaven, the great and awesome God, is more than able to help. But the big question now is, is he willing to help? Nehemiah is assured, secondly, that the Lord is willing to help. Like Daniel before him, Nehemiah identifies with his people. He identifies with their sin and behavior. He acknowledges that the exile into which they've been cast out of their own land and city and temple is the consequence of their breaking that agreement, what the Bible calls the covenant that God made with them through Moses. He acknowledges two principles here. Notice carefully. Disobedience leads to disaster. Verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. He says, It's no one's fault we're here but ours. And not just ours, 
but mine. Let me just backtrack a minute. I am not trying to lay a guilt trip on you because you don't come to prayer meetings. I know my own heart. Churches model their pastor. We all need to be people of prayer. We all need to share in that responsibility. But we also share together as we come to God and acknowledge our need and acknowledge our sin. But also, as we do so, we recall the terms of the covenant. Nehemiah reminds the Lord, as it were, of course, he doesn't need reminding, but he's, as it were, he's claiming the promises of God, that the Lord has said, yes, disobedience leads to disaster, but repentance leads to return, to restoration. But, verse 9, Lord, you said, if you return to me, this is all in the terms of the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy and the Five books of Moses. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. And so on the basis of this condition, Nehemiah comes to the Lord and says, Lord, you made this agreement with us. We're in a terrible mess because disobedience leads to disaster. But Lord, can I, can I humbly remind you that you promised that if your people, as the lady sang for us, if your people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wickedness, seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, restore their land, forgive them. Lord, that's what you promised. Now, I, I, I'm, as it were, humbly coming to you, Lord, I've confessed our need. Now, will you do what you promised? So he makes this appeal to the covenant, verse um, 10 which is based on Deuteronomy 30. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, me, Nehemiah, and your other servants. He's not alone. There are other people who have a similar concern, a remnant among God's people. Listen to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. If you want a good brief commentary on Nehemiah, then the, it's an old commentary, but it's one of the best by Derek Kidner, the IVP commentary. He comments as follows about Nehemiah. He will have to come empty-handed with his requests. He has nothing to claim. He is empty-handed, but not uninvited. He knows the threats and promises of Scripture well enough to make a strong, not a tentative plea. A strong, not a tentative plea. And as we come to God today beyond Nehemiah, and for a new and better covenant, as we've already sung, we come before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. These are wonderful words. They're actually very, people think it's a modern song. It's just a modern tune, friends. It was, it's a very old song, but it's got a wonderful truth within it. Uh, it's based on the New Testament book of Hebrews, of course. Just let me remind you of the words, and notice again the, the themes that come out of it. A greater assurance of God's mercy through Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone where? Through the heavens to the God of heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's an invitation to every Christian. And it's an invitation to every church to come together to the throne of grace. If it were a throne of merit, we've had it, all of us. But because it's a throne of grace, we can come and find mercy, which is what Nehemiah pleads for. And we can find God's grace or favor to help us in our time of need. And through Jesus, we can address the Lord 
not just as the God of heaven, but what did the Lord Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father in heaven. There is an intimacy that Nehemiah could only hope for that we can know through Jesus Christ. As we come as his people, as his servants like Nehemiah, but also as his children. But we have to come the way that God has laid down. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let me say, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the way you need to come if you're going to come to the throne of grace with any confidence and not with despair. If you've never come, come today to the throne of grace, to the place of grace, which is the cross of Jesus that's made it possible and his resurrection from the dead into heaven that means you can come to this great high priest. And when do we avail ourselves of such a privilege? Do we realize what a privilege it is? If so, it will eventually lead to something else. We come to the third point. Thirdly, prayer and action. Nehemiah concludes his prayer with a specific request. Now look carefully at the end of the last sentence. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Notice the word today and something you can easily miss unless you're familiar with ancient calendars. Do you notice right at the beginning of Nehemiah 1 verse 1, Nehemiah says this all happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. That's the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes when he gets the news. Uh, Kislev was a month that overlapped November, December. At the end of this prayer and fasting, he asked God to help him today. And as you come to chapter 2, you find that you're in the month, verse 1 in front of you, in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King... It's the same year of King Artaxerxes. All right? Uh, But Nisan covers the period March-April. So, the today that he's speaking about, notice very carefully, is at least four months since he first got the news. Nehemiah finally decides it's time today to take action, decisive action, 120 days after receiving the news, and after 120 days of prayer. Now, this is remarkable, given what we learn and know of Nehemiah. His position in court is cupbearer to the king, which may sound like a glorified kind of butler. Well, he was a lot more than that. He was the man who vetted the king's drink and food to make sure it wasn't poisoned. If you wanted to give the king a bottle of wine as a favor or whatever they had in those days, an ampoura or a flagon or whatever, he didn't just say thanks very much and swig it back. He said to Nehemiah, try that. You might think this is a privileged role, but it was a, a, a risky role as well. But he was a responsible person. There's a contemporary record of at least one cupbearer being prime minister. At very least, he would be the equivalent of what one writer calls a top security agent. And as such, Nehemiah would have been, and is later revealed in this book, as a man with organizational skills, able and willing to take decisions at the highest level. In short, he is a man of action. Yet when he gets this news, he spends four months in agonizing serious prayer over what he should do, or more importantly, what the Lord wants him to do. You see, activists, and I count myself unfortunately as one of them, find prayer a challenge to our activism. Kidner again comments very helpfully. Since Nehemiah's natural bent was for swift, decisive action, his behavior here is remarkable. It shows where his priorities lay. And so after this long and serious prayer... Nehemiah comes to the conclusion that the key of the situation lies not with anybody else, but with him. 
and he must risk his career and possibly his life on the outcome. So here's the principle. Serious prayer should precede action. Serious prayer should precede action. If we are not careful, we pray too little and act too quickly. Praying in generalities, asking God to bless and prosper what we've decided to do. Alan Redpath, a former pastor of this church, once commented, there is too much working before men and too little waiting on God. And if I know anything of Alan Redpath, he was a man of great dynamism and action himself. We would do better to devote ourselves to prayer, to seek the Lord's will when faced with bad news or any kind of news so that we might know specifically what to pray for, for that vital key that can unlock difficult situations as we face challenges as a church in this next year in these next months we need to be people who are prepared to come together and spend serious time in prayer seeking God's face and seeking to determine God's will so serious prayer should precede action but ultimately serious prayer should produce action serious prayer will always eventually lead you to do something because of it It's no easy task, and the action usually involves great risk. Personal faith for Nehemiah, personal risk. As we'll see, God willing, next week, um, Nehemiah steps into the king's presence for the very first time in his career with a sad face. An, An act which is punishable by death. Whenever you came before the king of Persia, who had the power of life and death, you put a big grin or a contented smile on your face. Nehemiah goes into the king's presence, and the king notices he has a sad face. And he's going to have to make a request to the king, who has recently made an, er- an edict of the laws of the Medes and Persians, to stop building the wall. And he's going to say, king, I'd like to rebuild the wall. What? The one I told them not to build? Yep, that's the one. Big risk. But it is no risk when it is God's plan. And it's no risk once you understand the who's who in the drama that will unfold. Notice, and we now come to the final words of our passage this morning. Words again that you can easily overlook. Do you notice how it finished? I just love this. Here's Nehemiah putting people into perspective. I was, he says, cupbearer to the king. Now, I have to tell you, friends, if I'd been praying this prayer to the Lord, I would have introduced myself as cupbearer at the beginning of the prayer to the Lord, just to remind him who I was, you know. Lord, it's Peter Granger here, see any pastor of Charlotte Chapel. I've got a prayer request. Oh, you must listen to me, yes. Lord, it's Nehemiah here. I'm cupbearer to the king. You you know, Lord, and you you know that. But, And, uh, Lord, I'm cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. You know, Lord, the one who's like Barack Obama, you know, he's the most powerful man in the world. You know know the one, Lord, who has power of life and death? Um, You know, Lord, the one. How does he? Only now do we learn who Nehemiah is and who he works for. And notice how he refers to himself constantly in the prayer. He says, Lord, I'm your servant. Give me favor in the sight of the great king Artaxerxes. No, Lord, give me favor in the sight of this man. That's all he is. He's a man. In another commentary, the New International Commentary, Charles Fensham writes, In the eyes of the world, Artaxerxes was an important man, a man with influence who could decide on life and death. In the eyes of Nehemiah, Artaxerxes was just a man like any other man. If you're going to pray about world events, going to pray for our nation, pray for Barack Obama, yeah, responsible position. He's just a man. 
And who are you in God's presence? You're just his servant, seeking his will. Seeking to know what he wants to do through you, however big or small it may be. Let's just finish where we began, our conclusion. Uh, we began by asking what lessons we can learn about Nehemiah. We can learn a lot about dynamic leadership. Let's face it, friends, most of us ain't going to be dynamic leaders, certainly not on the scale of Nehemiah. Few of us are called to be leaders. But all of us can be like Nehemiah, men and women of prayer. And all of us are called in whatever we do, be it large or small in God's economy, and all of us have a role to play, however small you may think it may be, or however great the thing God may have lined up for you, all of us, unless we are men and women of prayer, then all that we do will be in vain. Because we'll be doing what we want to do, not what God wants to do. I wonder what you want. Um, I was speaking at the men's fellowship this week on Friday. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It It's wonderful. If you never joined the men's fellowship, 25 of us met there. And I said, I want want to leave you. Rodney gave me a title, which I hate it when people then say, will you speak? And then you discover the title. But anyway, not to blame Rodney. uh, And my title was New Year, New Opportunities. And I said to the men, I want us to discuss something this morning. Uh, I said... If, and who knows, if 2009 was the last year of your life, would you die contented? You might say, well, the men's fellowship, they're all getting on a bit. Okay. (laughs) We hope many of them have many more years to go. Who knows? Will you die contented? And let me leave you the final challenge. If you did, what epitaph would you want writing over your life? What would our epitaph be? Man of prayer? Woman of prayer? And what epitaph does God write over Charlotte Chapel? Church of prayer? Not at the moment, I don't think. Maybe we need to change that by God's grace. Let's pray together.